Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's roundup. Got a bunch of cool stuff to talk about and an in-person interview with Corey from My Life in Gaming. Also, the gig on the 28th is confirmed. So it's Wednesday, September 28th at the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn. Uh, tickets are for sale now and a bunch of people have already confirmed to be going. And I figured this would be a great way to try out meetups. If it works out, awesome. You know, we'll do maybe one every couple of months or something. And if it's a big failure, whatever. The 10 people that are going to show up will have a good time, drink some beer, and listen to music. So either way, it's a win for me. <laughs> but uh, let's jump right into the news. Super G has opened pre-orders on the G-SCART Switch again, and this time it's $5 cheaper and comes with a power supply. So he's found ways to, to lower the price of the units a little bit. So it's 220 now, but with the power supply, I mean, at the end of the day, you're actually getting $15 saved. So it's pretty good. Um, shipping's fair worldwide and U.S., uh, depending on locations. Uh, and for anybody that doesn't remember, the G-SCART switch is an 8-port auto-switching SCART switch with dual outputs and a ton of features. Just check out the website um, if you need any of the specs. And he's doing it by opening pre-orders until he gets enough to make an actual batch, then closing pre-orders, making and shipping that batch, and then opening pre-orders again. So it would be nice if pre-orders were open constantly and it never closed, but, um, you know, it's only one person making these, and there's a lot riding on them, so, uh, you know, I just give him some slack for that. Also, the JP21 version of the Switch, he needs 30 orders in order to make a batch of them, and they're not as popular as he thought, so if he doesn't get 30 orders, he's going to have to refund those people's money and then wait till next time and hope that there's more people that want them then. Um, this won't affect the actual SCART switches. This is just the JP21 versions. So if you were waiting on one of these, definitely jump on it now. Otherwise, it might be like six months before you have another opportunity to get them. But once again, just remember, it's just one guy doing it. So it's not like there's some big company we could all yell at. It's just one guy trying to make and fund these by himself. So... Um, hopefully it'll work out for everybody that needs one, uh, and definitely grab one if you were waiting on the SCART versions. The AVS from RetroUSB has started shipping. Now that's the HDMI outputting uh, FPGA-based Nintendo console, and most people have already received theirs. Uh, if you haven't already, it should probably be within the next week or so. And he's done it all himself. He got a ton of boxes uh, shipped to him. And I think he said he had to get a U-Haul truck and, and make a bunch of trips back and forth from the post office. Uh, and he's been shipping them all out himself. But he's got a gigantic amount of them already shipped and ready to go. Uh, and they've already been getting really great reviews, and everybody liked it as much as I did, so I'm really happy for them. And also, it made it on Engadget. I think I emailed them about four or five different times from different email addresses about it, so <laughs> they, I guess they finally picked up on it and realized it was newsworthy. So, uh, very happy for Retro USB. I think it's a great product, um, and it holds a good niche for people that want to spend about that kind of money and just have something that, that just works. So uh, if you haven't seen it yet, um, check out the review and check out his products. 
To follow up on last week, I received my Magic Wildcard in the mail, um, which is a Famicom Disk System ROM cart, and it works exactly like the FDS stick. Uh, but there are just a few small differences, which I'll just kind of list out really quickly. The FDS stick is $12, including shipping, and it requires a Windows program in order to load all of the ROMs onto it, but it works perfect, uh, and there is a limit of how many. So if you have the Smoke Monster ROM set, you actually have to remove five, um, and then it's completely filled. Whereas the Magic Wild card uses a micro SD card, and if you format it FAT32, you could just dump everything on and have plenty of room for more. But the biggest difference is price. So that FDS stick was $12, including shipping, and the Magic Wild card turned out to be 37 including shipping, plus you need a micro SD card. So it's three times the price, if not a little bit more. But it really just comes down to what you need. I mean, if you prefer a micro SD card uh, and you don't want to run Windows software and you want pretty much unlimited ROMs, maybe the Magic Wild card's for you. But I think the average person would probably just get an FDS stick and deal with, you know, adding or removing a few ROMs here and there. Because for the most part, you could uh, keep everything on there. So I'll leave both the links in. It's up to you on which one you'd prefer. And the only one thing that I would like to see as an upgrade on both of them is if you have a really long file name. I like it when ROM carts scroll the name across so that you could actually read the whole thing when you hover over it. And neither of them do that. So if that's a feature that's possible, that would be awesome. But if not, they both work great. And it's just a matter of price versus micro SD versus loading via Windows. So uh, the links are in the description for anybody that wants one. Crix has relaunched his Genesis ROM carts under the new naming scheme with different features. So he's following Intel in the 3, 5, and 7, and the X3 is now for sale for $49, which is a great price. And it's just a basic um, Genesis uh, SMS ROM cart. And then the X5 uh, has a few more features on it, and then the X7 is pretty much the exact same as the Mega EverDrive used to be. So I would check out the checklist and see which one is right for you. Um, if you already have a Mega EverDrive, there's no reason to upgrade. It's the same thing. Uh, but if you hadn't purchased one yet, it might actually be worth now just jumping on one, especially because of the cheap price of the X3. But I'll leave the links in the description, uh, as well as the chart that describes the differences between each. Sega just announced that Sonic Mania will be released in a collector's edition. So Sonic Mania is that 2D side-scrolling Sonic game that's going to be released in spring of 2017. And the Collector's Edition is still going to offer a download of the game, not a hard copy. But it's going to come with uh, a download card, um, a Genesis cartridge with a golden ring affixed to it, but a 12-inch statue with Sonic standing on a Sega Genesis. And when you flip the switch, it's going to say the Sega logo or that, you know, the Sega startup sound from the Genesis days. So it seems like a pretty neat thing for any big Sonic fan, but, you know, it's it's still going to be a downloaded game and everything. It's just kind of a neat toy to have. Uh, but that's going to be $69.99, I believe, which is a little bit expensive, but, hey, if you love Sonic, it's not too bad of a price to pay. Next, Arcade Hacker has released the Capcom CPS2 Security Programming Guide, and I believe this is what Artemio was actually talking about a few weeks ago when he was on the podcast about uh, now there's ways to use the old Capcom arcade boards without uh, any kind of hacking or ruining of the boards uh, because they had some kind of security features on them that uh, stopped them from being used. I actually don't know too much about it other than I knew that you'd have to hack up one of those old arcade boards for it to be working properly. 
So I'll post the links in the description, and hopefully I'll have another member of the team on kind of soon to talk exactly about how this would be implemented and other ways that you would use this. But, uh, I mean, it seems like years of work are finally coming into this, so I'm really happy for them that they got this done, and I really hope to learn a lot more about it soon. A group of people took the upcoming iOS game, Super Mario Run, which is Nintendo's first Mario mobile game, and they turned it into an N64 game. Now, it won't run on real hardware, It won't, at least on my EverDrive 64 I couldn't get it to run, but it's kind of neat to see, and uh, you know, if you don't mind using an N64 emulator, it seems like something that would be fun just to try out. But while this really isn't retro gaming news, it's always fun to see stuff like this, and they did a great job on it, so it's definitely at least worth taking a look at. The upcoming South Park game, Fractured But Whole, has been delayed till uh, early 2017. No real reason on the delay, but I'm sure they just want to polish it up and probably want to add support for the, the 4K versions of the consoles. But I'm actually really interested in playing it. Uh, I still haven't gotten to the Stick of Truth, but hopefully someday soon, because that looks like an awesome game as well, and I always did like the South Park series. Kevtris, the designer of the High Def NES, has reverse-engineered another game console, the GameMate. Now, I'll be honest, I've actually never even heard about this until I saw him post about it on his forum, but it's a mobile console that I guess wasn't really that popular, and he has fully reverse-engineered it and has it working on his FPGA console, which is the Zimba 3000. So it's cool, uh, and it's especially cool to see obscure consoles that are really starting to get reverse-engineered and being able to load on an FPGA and not just an emulator. So things like this are really necessary to kind of preserve these old things. And, you know, while I always use the CDI as an example of a terrible console that we still need to keep the history of, I mean, it would be nice to have all of them like that. You know, it's one thing to have a video game museum where everything is in one place and people can go see them, but once you reverse engineer it to a point like this, you could include it into a console like the Zimba 3000 where anybody could try it that owns it. So, uh, good work to Kevtris, as always, and I hope he just keeps doing these crazy older, uh, you know, obscure systems. And lastly for the news, the DB Electronics graphics booster is now in stock, at least at the time of recording the video. Um, they don't stay in stock very long. But for anybody that is not aware, the graphics booster is for the TurboGrafx-16 and PC Engine consoles. Um, and it kind of is like the Turbo Booster, which was basically just a composite video and stereo audio adapter. But this includes RGB as well, and no modding is required. As long as you have the original consoles and not the duos that have the plug uh, slot and back, you just plug this right in and you get really great RGB video out of it. And this uses a Genesis 2 RGB cable, but just make sure your cable has the capacitors in the SCART head uh, to match the Genesis 2 spec. Otherwise, you might have issues with it. But I highly recommend this one for anybody that doesn't use the Super CD because it's just a no-fuss solution. You just take your Turbo Graphics, you grab this, you plug it in, and it's crystal clear RGB. The only times I wouldn't recommend it is for the Duo, because it won't work with the Duo, or if you have to use the CD adapter, then you would really need an internal solution, but for everybody else, this is the way to go, and try to grab it while it's still in stock. Now on to the Q&A stuff. Dougley007 was following up on the discussion last week about a light gun that works on flat screen TVs, and he posted one that's actually available now and works with any of the GunCon 2 games. So that's PS2, Xbox, and then MAME or PC games. Uh, it's $60 plus shipping, so um, I'm not really sure if I want to drop that much money yet to try it out, but if anybody already owns it, 
please post uh, feedback in the links and let me know if it's worth it. If it stinks, I'm not going to bother. If it is worth it, I definitely will buy one and do a full write-up and review of it. But I just want a little bit of feedback from people first before I jump into it. But uh, thanks, Dudley, for posting that. Next, Dandy Panty asked, What's the difference between a cheap clone console like the Retro Duo and something like the Retro USB AVS? Uh, I'm going to oversimplify this just so I don't end up talking for 10 minutes about it. But to to put it as shortly as possible, the Retro Duo is essentially like a software emulator on a chip. It's extremely inaccurate, there's a bunch of bugs in it, and it only outputs composite and S-video. And if you've never played an original Nintendo, you might not ever notice the differences. But something like the AVS is an FPGA-based uh, simulation, to quote the guys from My Life in Gaming, and it outputs and renders at 720p. So... FPGA-based things are different because what you're actually doing is emulating the chips themselves. So you would reverse-engineer the chips, and the FPGA is programmed to run exactly like those chips. So you could actually technically get 100% accurate emulation out of it because it's not a software layer running on top of another software layer outputting video. You're essentially just programming an FPGA to run like another chip. But that being said, I mean... I would notice a difference immediately in some of my favorite games, and I would always prefer the AVS or the original with you know a, a RGB mod or the high-def NES on it over something like the Retro Duo. But if you like yours and it seems to be working well for you, I mean, why bother upgrading? Especially if you're using like a consumer-grade CRT TV, it might work fine, and there's no need for you to update. Um, one other thing to mention, though, is in your question, you said that your Retro Duo sometimes boots games that the NES won't. That is definitely just the cartridge connector. So the 72-pin NES connectors wear out really quickly, and unless you replace it with something like a blinking light win, um, you might always have that issue. But, you know, a brand new one in the Retro Duo is going to last a lot longer because it's brand new. Um, the top-loading NESs uh, and any front-loading NES with the blinking light win installed won't have that issue, though. But I uh, hope that answers your question. Borrower posted a link in last week's comments that I wanted to share with everybody. If you're using an EverDrive NES, so the Nintendo version of the EverDrive, and you want to use it on a Famicom, a lot of things won't work through a NES to Famicom, Famicom converter, and Borrower a while back wrote a guide on how to update that converter to work with it. I guess recently Gadget UK 164 helped him out with some compatibility issues, so now you could use a NES EverDrive on a Famicom with a modded converter and have 100% compatibility. So I just wanted to pass the link along, and its uh, link is in the description. And lastly, Moon asked, what do you think of the Arcade VGA 5000? So just a quick rundown of what that is. The Arcade VGA is a video card that outputs natively in 240p. So you would plug it into your Windows system, run the software, reboot, and from the moment you reboot, including the DOS screens, it runs in 240p. So you could have it hooked up to your RGB monitor, and it works fine. It's not sending a 480i or 480p signal to it, and it looks and works great. Um, there's some games that I don't think it's powerful enough to play, some of the newer arcade games, but I played through all my old arcade games on it. I had it installed in my Mortal Kombat machine, and I really didn't have any complaints about it. And uh, I guess Moon wanted to use it with AM2R, another Metroid 2 remake, and I actually used that as well to play it through my RGB monitor on it. But the controversy is that it's expensive, 
and that it's not as powerful as other choices. And a lot of people uh, prefer using something called CRT MU driver, which you could take any AMD ATI card within a certain spec range that has an analog output, run the CRT MU driver software, and when it boots into Windows, it will be 240p. As far as I know, though, that won't actually force 240p modes in DOS while booting, so your monitor will still get the weird wavy lines from 480p on it. And it is still a bit of tweaking involved, whereas the arcade VGA is you just run the software and reboot. That's it. So if you plan on tinkering, if you like messing with things, if you don't mind having to retry a few things, especially if you know how to install Windows and uh, you're comfortable with that, I would just get a cheap uh, AMD ATI card and use CRT MU driver and give that a shot and see what you think. But if you're the type of person that just wants to load in a video card, run some software, and have it work, end of story, I would just get the Arcade VGA 5000, because it's always worked fine for me. So um, I'm sure I'm going to spark some debate in the comments, and I'm looking forward to it. I really want to hear what people think. Um, I know my buddy James has said that he wanted to send me his profiles for CRT MU driver to try out, uh, and he seems to have gotten them pretty accurate for BVMs. And a lot of other people have said that I should really start to promote that, uh, that software as well. And there's one guy online that does a lot of arcade-style videos that I'm hoping to get on the podcast eventually and talk to him about it and kind of get his input as well. But I'd love to hear what people have to say in the comments. Uh, but unless I hear otherwise, I mean, I'm still sticking to the fact that while there might be better solutions, the arcade VGA is just a quick plug-and-play, now your PC outputs 240p solution. Now for something a little fun and different, I actually met Corey from My Life in Gaming in person in New York City, which is kind of neat, because although I'd love doing the Skype interviews, uh, if I could, I would actually like to do them all in person, I just don't have the money to fly around the world and meet everybody, but it was neat. We actually ended up meeting at the Nintendo store, which, although I live right by New York City, I'd never been there. Um, they had anything from this awesome Super Nintendo shirt I got to, um, you know, a Zelda backpack shaped like a game cartridge and... Pretty much everything Zelda I could have ever imagined there. Uh, it was, you know, pretty cool to see. Um, they also had, like, uh, every Nintendo console ever, every Game Boy console ever, and a few that I'd never realized, like uh, one signed by Miyamoto himself that was a Zelda edition Game Boy Advance SP. It was pretty neat. Um, we walked around there for a while, and then we also ended up uh, happening to walk by a game store where everything was the most expensive I'd ever seen it. It was, like, absolutely appalling to see. They were selling N64s for, like, 100 bucks each. There wasn't one item in there that I couldn't find on eBay, including, che uh, including shipping for cheaper than that. So it's kind of sad to see certain game stores rip people off, especially when there are great game stores out there that don't rip people off. They have good prices, good trade-in values, but... Yeah, it's New York City for you. If it's in a touristy neighborhood, I'm sure they're going to do everything they can to make some cash out of it. But um, then we ended up going to Barcade in Brooklyn, um, and it was a bit of a mess. Uh, we went in there, like, uh, we had to set up, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't really want us in there with his family, so we had to kind of figure out a way to, to record it. And then I set up my iPhone, and I was off screen for most of it. Uh, it it's kind of a disaster. And then halfway through, they turned the music up on us. So I don't know if they did that on purpose because they didn't want us filming in there or something, but I certainly didn't feel very welcomed there. But it was a cool place. I definitely wouldn't go back just because I like arcade machines. So uh, hopefully the video didn't come out too bad. Um, I, could, I could hear Corey when I listen, but there's definitely a lot of background noise. So hopefully next time uh, you know, we'll be able to do it in a better location and kind of sit down and 
uh, and really just have a good one-on-one talk. But I hope everybody enjoys it, and um, I guess I'll see you guys next week. Hey guys, I'm actually here in person with Corey from My Life in Gaming. This is not a digital green screen. We're actually right here, <laughs> and we're at uh, we're at Barcade in Brooklyn. Uh, he's here on vacation, just kind of hanging out, and uh, it's early. There's nobody here, so we're enjoying our beers in peace. It's kind of yeah. fun, actually. It's funny because I actually lived the next train stop over from here for 11 years. Wow. So I. Did you actually like come here every once in a while and hang out? Yeah, then, or? I was just saying, telling Bob that when I lived here, I moved away two and a half years ago. My fam- my wife and I and our kids uh, moved to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. But when I was here before, there had a very strict uh, no games pre nineteen ninety, and it's definitely changed at this point. Yeah, they have a good for the better. I think they have a Daytona arcade unit here, which I'm gonna whoop Corey at as soon as we're done with this. And then uh, they have a lot of other ones, which I'm sure he's gonna whoop me at as soon as we're done with that. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I was only here once with uh, with Bill and my cousin Scott, and uh, different selection. I didn't like it as much, so I'm kind of excited <laughs> for this one. But, so, how long ago did, did you live here then? So four years so, or something? Uh, how long ago? Yeah, uh, two and a half years. Two and a half years. Alright, gotcha. We left at the very beginning of. 2014? Yes, it was February of 2014. Ah, too bad. Right when the website was kicking in and you moved out. It's funny how many people that I talk to on a regular basis live so far away, and then some people that live within, you know, with an eye shot almost. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's funny, I mean, because we had just started My Life in Gaming. Yeah, so how exactly did that start? Like, how did you guys even meet? Because for whatever reason, I thought you were like, like high school, or high school friends or something. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize. Uh, I didn't realize Mark was that much younger too, or something. Yeah, uh, Mark uh, was one of the creators of uh, a site called the Backloggery, which okay. is a, a game collection site that focuses on uh, actually playing the games that you have. Mm-hmm. You know, you can track the statuses like games you've never played or games that you're you're playing at the time, games you've finished, or games that you've done everything that there is to do with it in them. And he was one of the uh, co-founders of that site. And I became a member, I think, like it was right before I got married, so like early 2008. Okay. And uh, I watched him do live streams all the time. And, you know, we started to talk because we had very similar backgrounds, you know, in video production. And then we met at MagFest in 2012, I think. And we, and we just kind of got into, uh, talking about how we'd like to do like a show i guess i guess that's like a really really condensed version of it but it, it took a long time hmm. of getting to getting to know each other so what was the very first thing you guys did as my life in gaming it wasn't it always called it was called my life in games at first yeah, well, right? it was but we we changed the name like right before we launched gotcha okay uh the first thing we ever did was like a vhs of uh DuckTales Remastered, which was, you know, based on the old uh, How to Win videotapes. So you actually made, like, a VHS tape of it or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because we like to joke about how we had this really nice capture setup, and we, you know, did everything as as good as we could, and then just crapped it all up. on a VHS tape. That's funny. So, um, but that wasn't, like, your actual first YouTube video, right? Um, I actually did a little bit of, uh, editing for a site called Snack Bar Games that is not around anymore. Actually, I can go way back. 
he wanted to go way back to like me in college in like 1999, 2000. Uh, I used to cut trailers for a site called uh, The Next Level, okay. and uh, it's kind of funny because I just did all these trailers for that, and I was very inspired by um, a guy named uh, Kevin DeSelms, who went by Hi-Fi, who uh, was part of a uh, game fan magazine, Okay. and he cut a lot of trailers, like very much like not, I mean this, we're talking like like late 90s so web video was not even a thing you had to like download these huge QuickTime files and he would make would cut like these trailers of games and you would see like nobody else would do anything like that so he was a big inspiration uh, for me so I started doing that for like another site and that's kind of how I decided I wanted to go to school to like edit video mm. and then you know like I lived in New York and like after I finished college and didn't do anything with Which games college I went to University of Buffalo Gotcha, gotcha, okay. And then I kind of is kind of a crossover time where the uh, editing system that I learned in college was just like on its way out like, yeah. at the very end. So you had to relearn everything. Yeah, so I, I got an internship here in New York. Didn't know anybody. Actually, I did know one person, but uh, he, he didn't, I didn't see him very much. Anyways, he, uh, I. I interned at this place and I got to take a whole bunch of classes in exchange for answering phones from them. So I learned a whole bunch of stuff. So I learned how to edit, like, learned a whole bunch of programs and stuff that way. Anyways, I was working at a uh, post-production facility here in New York and I was just kind of like bored with what I was doing. So I'd been like working on building this really nice capture setup and I volunteered for this site and said, you know, if you write and record a voiceover, I will like capture all the footage and like edit stuff. So I did that for like for several videos, and then I was asked to do like kind of an editorial thing where I talked about like my favorite game, and I did it on the game Fantasy Star. I spent all this time on it, and then to this day, it has 143 views on it. That is hysterical. And I eventually repurposed that for My Life in Gaming. For the Fantasy Star 2 video you did, for, right? For Fantasy Star 1 that I did. Okay. Uh, yeah, I repurposed like all the motion graphics I did and everything for like... But I, I decided at that time, I said, if I'm going to put all this work into doing these videos, I want to have some control over like how, like where it goes. Right. And I want to like make this content for myself. And I was talking to, to try at the time and said like, let's just start a channel together. So what was the very first My Life in Gaming video that was actually uploaded? Well, I mean, the how to beat stuff, the VHS stuff was the first stuff, was, okay. was My Life in Gaming, but I mean, I guess if you don't really want to consider it that, as, if you want to consider that like a separate entity on the same, on the site, like it could work in that way, hmm. but the actual first like narrative video that I did was about Star Fox. It was oh, like yeah. our third video on the site. I never saw that one. You guys got a lot of videos, so I haven't been able to catch up with all of them. It's kind of uh, crazy how many we have at this point. We have like over a hundred produced videos at this point, like edited videos. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting up there too. It's a, uh, but it's a completely, completely different type of video. I'm just talking in front of a monitor, and I, I was so excited when I just figured out how to put a picture next to me. I was like, <laughs> like, holy crap, this is it. I'm making it into YouTube editing now. I got yeah. a picture here. So. And then Kenji made me that opening. So now I freaking, yeah, yeah that's yeah, awesome. Great. So, but yeah, that's hysterical. But I mean, at the time, you know, when I was, uh, like when I was first getting into it, I wanted to 
I wanted to have control over what I was doing, and that was like the best way to yeah to do it. And I I think it's really paid off. Even though we are very very the first couple months were very slow, and we had a video our our VHS video on uh, on the Wind Waker it was like kind of our first big break. But it's a very slow climb since this year. Like we've like tripled in size this year. Yeah, I think after your and yeah. I don't know if you guys can still hear with the music. Hopefully it does. This might be the first podcast I ever edit because of the background music. Sorry. But, yeah, I'm actually really good about that. People are always afraid, like, oh, if I ramble, just edit. But the only one I've ever done is uh, Wes from Second Opinion Games and I were talking about something and I said the wrong date or something. So right. I cut it out. It was the only time I edited. But this might be it. I don't know if you guys can hear it or not. Hopefully my iPhone's filtering this out well enough. Should we, should we ask them? No, they already kicked us out once, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> there's no kids in here, even though they're, yeah. you know, they're in a stroller and we we're going to sit in the corner. But My wife and kids were with us, and uh, like most places around here are good about that kind of stuff. And they're like, nope. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're toddlers. It's not like they're 18 and, you know, trying to spill right. the beer out of us or something, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, I think it was your N64 video, the uh, really the blur video that blew up immediately. Did you guys get like a hundred thousand views right away on that? Or something? What's really funny about that is that I had just like kind of landed a freelance uh, editing job, like for a like a color correcting a feature film, and it just kind of like was sprung onto me on the like the last second. And we had been sitting on that script for the uh, anti-aliasing hack for months. Yeah. And uh, Trav was just like, I guess, like, since I don't have, it was my turn to do a video. Usually we alternate. But since I had that sprung on me, it's like, all right, I'll try to, like, make something really quick. Spent, like, three days on it. Biggest video ever. So is that actually how you guys do it? You take turns on who does the videos? We try to, yeah. But I mean, some of those are really detailed and in depth. I mean, that's a ton of work going into those. Yeah, but generally, you know, we. We. Are like pretty much handle like all the editing on an episode each. I mean, there's only been one time, and that was with the uh, that Abidu retro receiver, where I actually edited an episode that Try was like the only person in it. Huh. That was only, that was only because we had removed it from another episode. We had removed that segment to like give it its own episode. Hmm. But usually, you know, we we pretty much handle everything like. We capture footage and stuff for each other if we need, because Shrey is much better, has a much nicer camera than me, and he has much more space to kind of like make this stuff happen, like these like bigger shots. Mm. Uh, so I'll say, okay, can you get me a shot of like this? Because his, his camera shoots 4K, and since we we edit in 1080p, you have 4K, you have so much more resolution, yeah. and you can like zoom in on these things. And 1080p and just get like it looks great. Yeah, but I can't do any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The I'm hopefully gonna get um, a couple of different ways to shoot 4K video for that same reason. Not because me sitting in front of a camera for the roundups is <laughs> <laughs> that's not important, but it's um, for exactly that same reason. Some of the things I do. So if I'm holding my camera in front of a screen, I can just cut out the center and then resize right. it. And so, yeah, it's helpful. You can you can make your own pans in it. Yeah, yeah, inside the same video. Yeah, Gina actually does that for our music videos. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of them. The um, 
the one where it was just the footage of her playing drums, that I recorded, I had two tripods and I recorded everything that we did, except my guitar parts, because I recorded all those just in my <laughs> underwear at home at like eight o'clock in the morning between real work. You don't want to see a video of that. But um, but when she put the video together of like the drum thing, it looks like somebody's panning across, it looks like right. something, and she just did all that fakery and, you know, and, uh, and then read. So I think she must have done it down resed because you're able to pan within it and then when she ex exported it exported it as 1080p so it stretched it and re-rendered it but it came out cool nice so, uh, I, love it. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how this is going to come out I don't know if it's yeah, blaring yeah, it's but, mad day, mad day. yeah I think we're going to have to call this one uh, call this one in but uh, I hope anybody can hear this but uh, <laughs> yeah, fun as always and, you know yeah. glad to actually be here in person finally so, yeah, see you guys next week take care